to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Fucking zombies and skeletons. Uh, it's another week of being a god, a god socialist podcast for jackasses. <laughs> I'm Alex Patakto and Jake Flores. I have a very narrow range of impressions. I have an extremely narrow range. I, uh, they all kind of sound like uh, sound like me. I'm Jake Flores. You're doing Anders Lee. We're all doing impressions of each other, and I have a pretty good Anders Lee, I have to say. I'm Jake Flores doing Gilbert Gottfried. Did that start as him doing you, and then you realized your impression of you sounds closer to Gilbert Gottfried? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I think we've done a good job doing the intros today. Um, <laughs> welcome back to the show. It's a very special episode. I think you're going to like it. Uh, it covers... Yes. If you're a wonk... This is the ep for you. Yes. You know what? Before we go into what it covers, let's just talk a little bit about the setup here. Uh, me and Anders, we we just did an interview where I have, because Jake is on tour, revolutionized the technology capabilities of my uh, audio podcasting setup, plugged in headphones into the mixer for the first time ever. That realized, was shared. Realized <laughs> I did not have a, a split, and then me and Anders shared headphones to listen to the interview like we were dating on a train. It was hot with a capital H. Yeah, we were in love, and we were showing each other our favorite My Chemical Romance songs, <laughs> and it was the closest I've ever felt to another man. And I just want to share that with our fans. <laughs> in when? I want you to know. <laughs> Anders is leaving, and I feel so close with him. Oh, wait, have we said that on the show yet? I don't think we have. I announced it on Sochmead. Yeah, uh, so all the real Anders heads know. All the real Durs links. Anders, tell, break their hearts. I'm moving to Washington, D.C. Uh, I got a job down there. I don't know if I should say what it is yet. Don't say what it is. Okay. Keep it a mystery. I'll keep, keep it, it a mystery. mystery You'll like... find out if you're a real Dursling. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is only for the real fucking Dursling. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. But we're doing this episode, and let me tell you this. It's also my first step back from Edinburgh. I went there... Um, for the third time this year, and this the genesis of this episode kind of starts there because uh, they do these conference in things in in Scotland uh, where they invented climate change. I was at a b- breakfast thing. They do these breakfasts where you're supposed to network with what? producers. Yeah, they do networking teas. And this breakfast. is how climate change starts. Well, I'll tell you why because the one I went to. Wasn't expecting this. I'm just expecting to talk about my comedy thing, sell my my autism show to people. Yeah, you're there to sell T-shirts for autism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh crap! I just spilled water. Yeah, on, you spilled uh, water. Copy all of over Commune. Uh, Pretty funny. <laughs> it's all right. It's a visual medium. It's we fine. do worst things to it in figurative sense. You know, <laughs> we no no I don't. no we don't. <laughs> we rip it apart. Well, we let. Oh yeah. Thea, you know, All walk right. us through the critique. All right, so you're in, you're in Scotland. I'm in Scotland for a producer breakfast, and I was not expecting this, but they have a panel, and it, this is at like nine in the morning, 
Uh, and the panel is all people talking about like social justice stuff, um, which, you know, was, wasn't what I was expecting. So at first I was a little disappointed, but I was actually kind of into it. There's this guy talking about like indigenous theater and stuff and he was tight. And then the last guy on the panel um, is this Brit and he stands up and announces that he is a, a producer of a science-based Fringe Festival. I believe he's a Brit. Might be, you know, some other Anglo country. Like the Fringe of Sciences? Yeah. like, a, But it's a performance thing, like but Earth for science-related... Yeah. <laughs> it's for science-related pieces. And mine is sort of... I go into the, his, the scientific history of... Vitism. And yeah, yours is on the fringe of science. Yeah, sort of. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, my ears are perked up. And then he says, this year we are not flying anyone. So if you have to travel internationally via airplane, you are not welcome. Woo! Because they're trying to, you know. They're cutting the carbon. Yeah. It's and a carbon-free uh, 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 bone science-based festival. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're, it's, we just want to get to carbon neutral as we discuss race science. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been, I mean, maybe he was an eco-fascist. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not going to deny that I don't know for sure. We know nothing about this man, and he's out there somewhere. Well, I, I do know, and I would have to look this up, but he did say that, like, I have students coming to me and asking us to divest, and I think that's great. And it's like, okay, are you actually doing it, or are you just... Like, because I, I ostensibly there are companies, uh, some of them polluters, who give money to this thing and this guy. Um, this and then he's mystery gentleman has a hell of a background. Yeah, but he. Uh, so I get up to ask a question and sort of torpedo my chances at networking with anybody there because I get on a little soapbox, and uh, <laughs> uh-huh. and I'm like, you know, that's one of the big problems. Of the and I'm you know exhausted at this point. I was probably very inarticulate, which didn't help either. Were but you yelling? I think I kept it restrained, but okay. often my voice is louder than I think it is. Uh-huh. Um, and I was like, the problem with the climate movement. Uh, I didn't set, state this. I was like, I think most we can agree that one of the big flaws in the climate movement is that it's become about individual consumer choices. And if we're going to prepare for climate change then we got to work together as a world, and that's going to involve a lot of international travel and talking to people and producing art, maybe. Right, that, just a quick reminder, this is not a leftist meetup. This is at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Yes, <laughs> but we need art. <laughs> this is a group of people coming together to announce to each other that their dads are dead. <laughs> And then singing songs about it. And deal with the that emotional contradiction that, yes, he's dead, that's painful, but now I inherit all of his millions. Yes, and now and I, I do, do a show about art. It. Yeah. I've shown the world my art. <laughs> uh, so, basically, I mean, my point was, like, we need art and ideas. Maybe, you know, art might be a stretch, although if you ask Commune, uh, they're going to do a lot of poetry that's going to make this change happen. Um <laughs> But we need ideas that challenge uh, the status quo and that uh, that inspire people to redistribute the world's resources so we can invest in things like electric planes. Yes, which you were very into, we found out. Yeah. In the course of this. Interview. I want to know about that. And Spoiler. Yeah. Because <laughs> I feel bad about it. Apparently, it's only 2%, according to the one figure I read, 
it's 2% of the carbon emissions come from air travel. So yeah. I don't know if it's that big, but as Thea That's pointed just out, Richard Branson. Yeah, we got well. We got the private jet setters, and we got a lot of the affluent who fly their planes, you know, all over the place. They they take uh, planes. Could I, I will have you know? Have I take mine. I save up every year for my big plane ticket to uh, to the UK. But I'm not. No one is auditing you about your I know. plane tickets. I know. Well, I of like course, this conversation has really put you on the defensive. It well, yeah. I mean, that's my job is to be. <laughs> rationalizing my privilege in, you know, more ways than one. And this is, I have flight privilege. It's I do fly not from time to time. <laughs> you don't think it is? I think this show no is, is for, <laughs> it's for straight cis white men yeah, to, to come and, you know, try to feel better about themselves. I'm sorry and it's fine. Right. We want to be not listening. part of the problem <laughs> and we will be part of the problem for the foreseeable future. But how can we reduce our problematic uh, footprint? Okay, well, that's a very interesting origin story. This is a Green New Deal-centric episode. We have an amazing guest, Thea Riofrancos, yes. uh, coming up in a second. It's a very smart interview, and we sound smart for it. So remember that next time you're you're sharing this podcast with your other smart friends who are also skeletons. Um, <laughs> I guess my, my only question for you, Andrews, before we move on to the interview is uh, how did the stump speech go? Uh, there was one woman who was nodding, uh-huh. uh, and then the guy just didn't address it. He just pretended I didn't ask the question. It was probably Success. less eloquent than I'm making it out to be now, uh, but I felt like I needed to say it. Someone I thought, had to. I thought Someone had to good. stand up for people who travel internationally. Twice a year. Yeah, and also <laughs> want... I mean, honestly, like... This is not a solution. If you get all the fringe artists in the world to never take a plane, it will do absolutely nothing. I think you have no blood on your hands and that you were right to yell at this science man. <laughs> Shall we go into the interview? Yeah, well, should we preface it with this this piece by uh, Jasper Burns? Okay, yeah, just uh, real quick. Between the Devil and the Green New Deal, uh, another thing I read in Scotland, and I'm on a train, uh, apropos, I guess, and it depresses the living shit out of me. This thing is about how the Green New Deal is doomed to failure, and if it does succeed politically, it's going to bring down the fucking uh, global south with it. Uh, and the rest, and the world, really, because it's saying that we can't um, have a Green New Deal with, uh, without like creating all the carbon that we are su- supposedly trying to reduce. Like The process of decarbonizing the economy will in- include a lot of extraction and construction that will produce carbon. So it's, uh, you know, basically don't do anything. Sure. Or have a revolution you is know, the, the solution. Last revolution year, solution. Behind the paywall, you weren't there, but we did an episode on the Unabomber's oh, yeah. manifesto. And uh, I suggested it's not it. that different. <laughs> this article. Well, I wouldn't. <laughs> I'll say it. We don't want to put I'm him in that comedian. box. I don't commune, write words commune for has a good stuff. We like commune. Um I will say though, this is what and this is one of the things that irked me. We didn't get to this in the interview. But he knocks our big boy, Leon Trotsky, uh, <laughs> for wanting a transitional program uh-huh. because he says in this article, uh, that's a way of duping the working class. You should just be 
that's paraphrasing honest, obviously, but uh, we should be honest with them and tell them that we want full communism. Yeah. Uh, and number one, um, and you say like the, we think with this patronizing view of socialists that we think the working class is too stupid to accept our full-throated ideas. Right. In the uh, article, it's written very mean to Trotsky. It's mean to yeah, which we didn't like um, because number one, I I was doing a little um, canvassing this weekend in Marie Hernandez Park for a certain uh, bourgeois reformist social democratic politician Bernard Sanders, and it was. A worthwhile thing. It was tough, though. Like, you got to engage people. You got to uh, get them interested. You got to talk to them about health care and make them understand that this isn't some abstract thing. This is a program that will benefit you and your family. Right. Um, and you corner them at the park. Yeah. And that's tough enough. Uh, I you sit at their family picnic. Right. Something tells me that somebody canvassing for a uh, insurrectionary poetry zine would be a little more difficult than that. And I don't think that anybody, that we're at the place, and as he admits in the article, we're not in a revolutionary stage at this point. Uh, so what do we do? Well, we need a transitional program. And that's not because we are trying, we're, we're fake communists and we're just, you know, want to remain in capitalism. Um, it's because if you get every human being on this earth to say, yes, communism, we need it, uh, it still is not going to happen overnight. You need a, just a systemic transition. The, like this, you need to change the nuts and bolts of things, which takes time, you know? Number one, the, the, uh, like the amount of decommodification and carbonization and decarbonization that, I think some of these people are calling for um, what they're calling for is a little bit hard to, to bend down, but a lot of it would cause chaos and would be especially hard for people who depend on, you know, technologies to survive, you know, disabled people and so forth. Um, I'm, of course, putting words in their mouth and assuming things and projecting, but I do think that uh, we need to be careful about the way we think about the future, which Thea does a great job of doing. We don't, but we ask her about it. And we need a transitional program. There's, we, we don't need to dance around it. This is what that is. It's a transitional program. Yep. So we ask her about that. We ask her uh, about the Green New Deal in general. We ask her about the article, which is a left critique of the Green New Deal, which made us both very mad. And uh, check it out, y'all. Ha ha. Um, all right. Well, I think we are ready to go. Okay. Cool. This is it. This is the podcast. All right, we're going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go for it. Okay. We are now joined by Thea Ria Francos. She is an author, a scholar at uh, Providence College, and is coming out with a new book. She is co-authored with some comrades uh, from Verso. It's called A Planet to Win. Thea, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we are one day out from the Climate Town Hall that all the Democratic presidential candidates uh, participated in with CNN. Just wanted to begin by getting your reaction. What were some of the, the highs? What were some of the lows? Um, I have to admit that, like many of us, I watched the town hall by just reading Twitter. Uh -huh. um, CNN made it like really hard to actually watch it, which is kind of obnoxious in the way they kind of privatize the climate discussion. Right. Um, so I didn't watch the seven hours, but I did read a lot of content about it. And... 
I think it sort of reinforced some of the previous opinions that I had um, about um, the different approaches to climate. I think that Bernie came out um, pretty aggressively, um, not only questioning kind of the role of the, and, and sort of directly calling out the role of the fossil fuel industry in causing the climate crisis, but even questioning capitalism and private ownership in our energy system. Mm. So I was really impressed to see that. Um, we got some strong um, stuff from Warren, but, you know, again, sort of not directly wanting to ban fracking and um, aside from public lands. But in general, she hasn't called for banning more fossil fuel infrastructures. So um, that's one difference between them. Um, and then we got kind of a range of stuff from the other candidates. Of course, Biden consistently the most disappointing um, and literally going to like a fossil fuel fundraiser after yeah. the climate town hall. So, I mean, that wow. tells you to know. Um, and I was really, I have to say, impressed by some of the questions from the audience, um, from some Sunrise activists and other activists, um, really asking some pointed questions about who's to blame for the climate crisis and what policies are going to get us out of it. So I was glad the town hall happened. I just wish it had been more accessible to the general public and not requiring like a cable subscription to watch it. Yeah. Almost anything, uh, any new show is pretty hard to watch. It Like, God forbid stars ever hosts one of the Democratic debates. <laughs> no one will see it. Yeah, this should have just been a Reddit AMA. I think that would have been more digestible. Um, What's up? We're 20 candidates. Um, I didn't see the debate, and I guess what my question is for you, and I know you just caught up on Twitter. Town Hall. It, I'm sorry, Town Hall. It is not a debate. Mm. It is a Town Hall. My question is for you. <laughs> did Beto say any more swears? Um, I actually don't know. Does anyone know? I don't know. His new thing is he says swears. Yeah. I feel like that really I, covers. No, it's very edgy. It's very youthful. It's very snarky. I, I have no idea if he said more swears. I um, think he said he dropped the frack bomb. I do think he said fracking, which like to some ears might be. Yeah. Fracking sounds bad. But um, so uh, you have written and are recently sort of a surrogate if I may say, for uh, Senator Sanders, his his climate plan. Uh, he actually calls it the Green New Deal, straight up on his website. Um, what differentiates that plan from the other candidates' proposals, um, especially Jay Inslee, who had to drop out recently, who was thought of as sort of the climate candidate. But uh, would you go so far as to say that Sanders' plan is even better than uh, Governor Inslee? I think that there are aspects of it that are better. I guess it's not really an aspect. It's more like the general approach that Sanders has that's different than some of the other candidates. So there's some overlap in policy. And I think Inslee, you know, did incredible, made like an over 100 page, I think, climate plan that other candidates have drawn on. And he's sort of put as an open source resource out there. Um, but I think what, what differentiates Sanders from basically every other candidate is what I would call like his theory of power. Some people like theory of change, but right. I think theory of power is like a little more direct. Um, and his theory of power is clear, like who the enemies are, who the movements and allies are, and how transformative change occurs is through not just legislation and not just executive action, as important as those are, but sort of building a mass movement with the encouragement of a Sanders administration, um, but also, you know, autonomous from it, building a mass movement to actually mobilize people at the scale that's needed to put pressure on our political and economic systems to get transformative change that addresses not only the climate crisis, but like the climate crisis and the way that it's imbricated in every aspect of contemporary capitalism. So it's really expansive and it's really movement oriented and it targets like who the enemies are. And those are really 
the fossil fuel sector, private utilities, and all of their kind of establishment um, kind of supporters and allies in the political system. So that to me is what differentiates Bernie's plan in a sort of at a sort of meta level. Mm -hmm. And then specifically, it's really aggressive in terms of the timeline. So decarbonizing the energy and transit systems by 2030, full decarbonization by 2050, um, generating 20 million new jobs. I don't think any other candidate's plan comes close, um, but also doing things like building 7.4 million new affordable homes. Um, it's also very much in line in a way that departs from some of the other candidates with like the global climate justice movement and thinking about things like fair fairness and equity and historic responsibility of nations like the U.S. in terms of doing our fair share um, because, you know, the U.S. economy, not ordinary Americans, but U.S. capitalists, let's say, have benefited so much from like a system that's polluted the entire planet. And so thinking about fairness and equity in our sort of global cooperation and then sort of like linked to that last point, something I was super excited to see in this plan is, is a stance against militarism, which is not thing. I mean, to sort of contrast it with Warren, though I do like aspects of her plan, um, she's kind of called for greening the military. And I think sort of Sanders' approach is we don't green the military. We need to defund the military-industrial complex and actually use resources for social and environmental good. And so I was really happy to kind of see that in his plan as well. That's true. We're going to cut a lot of fat by reducing the budget for tanks that shoot at clouds. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm reminded now as you're talking about the, you know, third the the impact of climate change on the global south a lot of the emissions that come from countries like the united states i remember uh like 10 years ago or so there were some people calling for uh climate debt sort of uh reparations for uh u.s pollution is there something in his bill or or any of the proposals or his plan uh that sort of approaches that 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 you think would uh try to begin to make up for a lot of the damage that's been done to the the global south by countries like the U.S.? Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, Sanders' plan calls for the most of any other candidates in terms of U.S. contributions to the U.N. Climate Fund, which is um, hasn't worked as well as it should um, for a few reasons, but mainly because it's been dramatically underfunded um, um, in terms of the contributions of wealthy countries like the U.S. So he calls for a very large contribution to that fund, which is ostensibly to fund um, decarbonization efforts in the global south um, with the acknowledgement that um, the global south is the kind of first victim of climate change and and but also the the part of the world that has done the least to cause it. So he he has a pretty strong, as I said, focus on fairness and equity and climate justice. I don't think he uses the language of debt, um, but he does clearly indicate like how much money the U.S. would be giving to this fund. And it's it's like way more than any other candidate has has promised to give. Yeah. And what are some of the differences between his plan and the bill that AOC has Uh, co-sponsored with, I believe it's Senator Markey from Massachusetts. So the main bill, uh, excuse me, main difference between the AOC Markey resolution and Sanders' plan, um, uh, the really top difference is that he's much more aggressive about calling out and in a policy way targeting the fossil fuel industry. Mm. I think that the AOC market Markey plan or excuse me resolution was in a way intelligent in in avoiding conflict because the plan that the resolution has put forward is already pretty a pretty dramatic departure from prior climate policies so I think that they knew that they'd get a lot of heat from that and didn't want to pick additional fights so they didn't pick a fight honestly with the fossil fuel industry but Sanders has you know no problem with picking fights and so he picks a very clear fight calling out the fossil fuel industry as the cause of you know primary cause of 
of climate of the climate crisis, not only in terms of emissions, but in terms of the way that they've manipulated the political system to sow uncertainty and doubt and sort of stall on climate action. Um, so he, you know, proposes a range of tools to aggressively prosecute and um, tax and regulate the car- the fossil fuel industry really out of existence. And it and it also, in addition to that targets uh, another private actor that we don't talk about enough in in the U.S., which are privately owned utilities. Um, And he targets them as, um, he says, get greed out of the energy system, which I love that sort of catchphrase because it really is true that up to now, um, our energy system is governed on a principle of greed. Um, There are public utilities in the U.S., and some of them, you know, are really not great in terms of, you know, they still rely on fossil fuels, and we do need to regulate and push those public utilities into a into a renewable energy direction for sure. Um, but the private fossil fuel um, kind of sector has, excuse me, the private um, uh, energy companies and also the um, investor-owned utilities have just shown time and time again that they are like unwilling to move off of fossil fuels, except when they're directly forced to by forceful regulations. And they also directly kind of profit from a system that is polluting the environment. Um, so I, I was really happy to see him go after not only fossil fuel companies, but investor-owned utilities. Right. So one of the highlights for me from last night was, and you mentioned how good the, the questions were from the audience, I really, of course, loved... Uh, when that guy went after Joe Biden for meeting with um, a quote-unquote executive. Later, they tried to clarify and say that this guy was not somehow uh, a CEO, but he's like an associate of some technicality. He was a CEO uh, second, but a cool-ass dude first. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but Biden has not gone so far as to embrace the language Green New Deal. I don't think he uses that term, even though it's in many ways sort of a... A, a nebulous concept at this point, um, but something you write about in the book, which everybody should check out, Planet to Win, is a, this quote-unquote faux Green New Deal. So people yeah. who are going to say, yeah, I support this, kind of like in the same way that uh, some politicians have been doing this with Medicare for All, they, they, they'll, they'll embrace the moniker, uh, but the details, of course, are where uh, the guy with the pointy horns is. Um so what are the markings, if you will, of the of the faux Green New Deal? Right. That's a that's a great question. I want to just you. say, though, you're welcome. <laughs> people don't say that enough. I got it. I think you yeah, have so many good people. questions. Uh, so many good questions. Um, so um, let me just say something which was is not a direct answer to your question, but just sort of at at um, um, just this point about the embrace of the Green New Deal. I just want to underline. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to answer the question, but I do. I will. I underline something first as a preamble, which is that just the embrace of the Green New Deal to me is a political success. I think sometimes on the left we get really worried about co-optation, and I think it's important to be worried about co-optation, absolutely. But, you know, I also like to think of certain forms of co-optation as a sign of success. I mean, like, we're influencing the debate in a way that is, like, completely new in American politics on a number of fronts, whether it's the Green New Deal or Medicare for All or Jobs Guarantee or all of these proposals that are out there that were just considered, like, ludicrous by the political establishment, like, a year ago, literally. And so I just want to highlight that that itself is is a milestone but it's not enough because you can call lots of things a green new deal and the devil is in the details so i think some of the things that, that differentiate a sort of phone green new deal or just a sort of like weak 
climate policy are, you know, these sort of appeals to bipartisanship and bipartisan consensus and kind of policies that have been embraced by the political establishment in the past, like cap and trade or like low carbon taxes, because that's literally what the fossil fuel industry wants. Like literally, if you go to the websites of like, you know, Shell or Exxon or whatever, or see the types of things that they've put out there and their surrogates put out there, it's low car, it's carbon taxes that are too low to make a difference. That's what they want. So anytime a politician is like, let's just do cap and trade or let's use market mechanisms or let's do some reasonable carbon taxes, like that's what the fossil fuel industry is asking for. And if like our enemies are asking for this policy, it's probably not the best policy. Like they probably know that it won't work to actually put them out of business and expropriate their assets, which is what we should be doing, but maybe more on that later. Um, so, you know, those types of policies are, are a faux green new deal. Also just not taking a clear stance that we need to absolutely today keep it in the ground. Like all coal, oil, gas just needs to stay where it is and not come out. And so that means banning fracking. That means banning all new fossil fuel infrastructure from pipelines um, to, to rigs to fracking, all of that stuff, offshore, wherever it is, we need to ban it. Not just on public lands, but like in general. Um, we also need to recognize the links to our political system and take kind of clear stances around like no more fossil fuel contributions to politics. So, um, um, and then a kind of final couple things that the faux Green New Deal, and this maybe gets into Yang territory, is sort of like these kind of like untested technologies that we don't know yet whether geoengineering or, you know, a mass scale kind of carbon capture can really mitigate emissions. I, and I think we should research some of these things. I'm not like anti-tech or anti-science, but the minute someone first goes to sort of a techno-optimistic fix that doesn't address the deep connections between capitalism and climate crisis and the, the sort of the real enemies of, of making progress on climate, um, you should be suspicious of them because they're skirting the issue, which is we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. We need to develop renewable energy and we need to make sure that, you know, the most vulnerable are cared for in a just transition. And, and those should just be the starting points for any like substantive Green New Deal. So, okay. So one of the watchwords for when people are trying to wean their way uh, back to the center on something like Medicare for All is when they say access to health care. Among the watchwords for a full Green New Deal, we have uh, bipartisanship, market mechanisms. Are there any other ones that people should just yeah, be... Yeah, I think cap and trade. I mean, I just don't think it's proven that it's going it, it, to... It's it's adequate to the task. Um, okay. And then, and then carbon taxes, which I'm not totally against, I mean, at all, especially when they're really high and when they're targeted at, like, the, the worst polluters. Right. Um, um, but I think when you see carbon tax, just go to the IPCC report and look at how high those carbon taxes are. They're extremely high. So most people, like, sort of middle of the road, moderate politicians, when they talk about carbon taxes, what they're talking about is too low to actually change the behavior of major polluters. So... So watch out for, you know, devil in the details again, but watch out for low carbon taxes. Okay. Right. If it's listed on Exxon's website, probably <laughs> yeah, higher yeah. than that. That's another, another red flag. Um, yeah. For sure. And again, too much appeal to fancy technology. And I'm not anti-tech. Like, I think technology and science, like the left should, I mean, there's no reason that the left should be anti-technology in some broad sense, but we sh but the left, I think, should be skeptical of what we might call techno fixes, which are technological kind of ideas uh, as to ways that technology can solve social problems like on its own without transforming the social system. Right. Right. Any snow piercer style ideas should be <laughs> carefully scrutinized. Yeah. Like things 
seen in a sci-fi movie, like, no, not yet. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> you just need to, like, prosecute the fossil fuel industry and use some pretty, like, known political tools to do that. It's crazy that that stance is more radical in our current discourse than Yang going on stage and saying he will build a Gundam that will get us out <laughs> of Earth's I know, orbit. I know. I mean, sometimes I'm glad he's there just because it's like such a great foil. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if he and Beto just tried to like take the text of a Philip K. Dick novel and just like make that into a a proposal somehow. And all of those novels, like actually the thing that's great about science fiction is it literally shows that those things are always more complex and fraught and like inflected with power relations. Like there's no simple tech in sci-fi, but it's almost like a dumb version of sci-fi. Yeah, it's a good point. Because it's not an actual solution. It's them vamping so they don't have to do the thing they don't want to do. (laughs) Right, exactly. And so they can keep getting contributions from Silicon Valley and wherever. Yeah. Well, another thing uh, people don't want to do, um, a lot of people in Democratic Party, is is move... uh, Carbon neutral segue. um, (laughs) Is to move beyond our current economic system. Uh, capitalism. And of course, that's a goal I think we share. Uh, Socialists, um, a lot of people who support the Green New Deal want to transition not only the energy system, but the economic form of the United States and the world. Um, But is there a possibility that there could be a Green New Deal that's not really a faux Green New Deal, like it meets all the targets and it provides um, good paying jobs, but does not move us away from capitalism, leaves the system intact? I mean, it's certainly a risk um, that like a political and a kind of social risk that there that that there's a Green New Deal that does address some things like runaway carbon emissions, um, but that doesn't do so in a way that transforms our social and economic system. Um, But. I actually, in a way, think that risk is limited, not for political reasons, because there are all sorts of actors out there that might have an interest in like sort of addressing climate but not touching anything else. But the problem is, is that it's really hard to substantively address the climate crisis without getting into the root causes of it. And the root causes are things like inequality actually drives climate change. When you have a very unequal social system, the very rich have extremely carbon intensive lifestyles and there's no one to tell them not to, right? Because they've also bought off our political system. So even just that one fact shows that it's hard to address climate crisis substantively without addressing inequality. Other things make it hard, like our extremely segregated, like privatized, individualized kind of um, uh, built environment, like the way like the way that the suburbs are built, honestly, um, are a big contributor to climate change. And so kind of addressing climate change without thinking about how to um, build affordable housing that has some density and build out mass transit is hard to do. So even addressing those sort of transit and built environment aspects involves addressing some of the drivers of inequality um, in our in, and segregation in our um, um, in our kind of economy and society. So I think that the sort of more aggressive and coherent and consistent the climate plan is, the actually the more likely it is to kind of get at some of the root causes, which are both root causes of the climate crisis, and they're also root causes of inequality and domination um, and segregation in our in our society. Right. We're kind of lucky in a way that we aren't at, you know, maybe the point Andrew Yang thinks we are, where you can just build a vacuum that sucks the carbon out of the air, because the base of the issue is unlimited growth and extractionism, and exactly. there's no way to deal with that except for 
changing the source of the problem. So there, you can't sweep it under the rug. It's physically impossible. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I just want to emphasize that, like, that doesn't mean that everything is easy from a socialist perspective. I mean, obviously, I think we all know that this will require a lot of political fights, and we can talk about some of that. But um, there are there are still there are tricky things that don't have like always clear cut answers, like that socialists might disagree with. Let's say, right? So some of this, I just want to kind of put these on the table because we don't talk about them enough on on the left, and we need to talk about them more. So some is like you know thinking about the actual logistics of rapidly building out renewable energy, which by the way is pretty land intensive, right? You need to in order like utility scale solar and wind like takes up a decent amount of land area. Fossil fuels are also land intensive. Sometimes we forget that. So we're kind of swapping land uses, but still like we need to build stuff out quickly and we need to build a lot of new transmission lines. And that can cause conflicts with local communities that are like, I don't want to live next to this solar farm or I don't want this solar farm to like um, take over what was a previous land use. Um, or I don't like these transmission, these ugly transmission lines next to my house. And so like, you know, we could just say, oh, that's NIMBYism. But, you know, we have to kind of engage with those complaints um, and and grievances and think about like what would a socialist or economically and socially just approach to the massive and rapid build out of renewable energy look like so we have to think about that think about stuff like managed retreat from coastlines there's like no easy answer there people are understandably very connected to place and to where they live in their neighborhoods and it's scary to leave and so what is what do socialists say to that and so I'm not I don't have you know I could Wax, sort of like wax on about each of these topics and I have some of my own ideas but I want to say that some of the battles are really clear and it's clear who the enemy is and who our allies are and what the good policies would be and how to build a mass movement and some of them are thornier and those are the ones that I'd like to see folks on the left start to talk about a little bit more um, because those are also things that like neoliberals will try to like say well that's you know you don't have a good answer for that we need to have good answers for that Right. So one of the things that I was very encouraged by in Bernie's plan is there's more of an emphasis on public ownership of things like utilities and renewable sources of energy. Uh, But what about the bad stuff? What about oil? Is that something we should think about nationalizing? Is that something that socialists should be pushing to? Yeah, this is another like thorny question that that's similar to the ones that I was saying that socialists have to think a little more about because the policy... The way that the policies that would work best and the way that you sequence them is kind of is, is kind of the challenge. So let me let me put this in more concrete terms. If if the government were just to sort of buy out fossil the fossil fuel industry and all of their assets right now, um, it without um, doing other things first, we would be buying extremely overvalued assets, right? If we were to actually compensate fossil fuel companies um, when we like take away their assets at the at what they think those what they would claim those values are those assets are valued at it would be astronomically expensive um and the reason that they're overvalued is because as time goes on those the the energy sector is going to be more and more regulated which will actually undermine the value of of carbon intensive assets so we don't want to buy out assets at current values so what you have to kind of do is sequence it in this complex way where first you implement extremely stringent regulations, like really high taxes on pollution, force those companies to internalize the cost, the externalities that they, you know, kind of think of as externalities, social and environmental externalities of the way that they do business. And then once that crashes the value, then you can sort of expropriate and without sort of paying these really high compensations. Um, So I think it's a matter of like, 
first devaluing the asset and then buying it out so that we're not sort of bailing out the fossil fuel industry, which is not what we should want to be doing as socialists. So we have to do negging to the fossil fuel industry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Bring yeah, the value exactly. lower first. Feel bad and worthless, and then buy them out. <laughs> <laughs> Establish physical contact. <laughs> uh, so we're also trying to think. Me and Alex here are trying to think of other things that activists can do outside of the state and and lobbying the state. Um, do you think there is a value in trying to form? Uh, more communal systems, sort of uh, mutual aid projects and things, you know, um, t- take air- uh, zones and areas in the world, in the United States, and try to uh, live in them communally and without without commodities. Could that? Do you think that's a tenable model along with this Green New Deal to sort of both um, become less dependent on fossil fuels while also moving us towards a different economic system? Yeah, so... I have mixed feelings about about this, and and I mean that literally. Like, it's not like I think this is bad. I just have I have like a sort of mix of, of feelings about about mutual aid and dual power strategies. I, I think that they can be strategic, and they, I also think that they can actually inadvertently under uh, sort of reinforce some forms of inequality in the U.S. So. Mm. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say, and, and we debate this all the time in DSA and DSA chapters and nationally about the role of mutual aid in our work. Um, and I think that what's important, um, I like a lot of the mutual aid projects. I think what's important is to always connect those to broader campaign work. Um, cause I, I don't think that we should be taking the position that sort of like poor marginalized and racialized communities should be like responsible for, in some narrow sense for their own survival. Like when those communities are disinvested in, they're discriminated against, they're segregated, like there are larger forces that are putting those communities in the situation that they're in. And so mutual aid work should both meet people's needs, but also like do organizing work to target the real forces that are putting those communities in a position uh, where they don't have what they need to survive. So I just always like to connect mutual aid to sort of broader forms of mobilization. That's one kind of answer. Um, the other is I get worried sometimes about when we when we talk about mutual aid and we talk about sort of community resiliency, um, uh, our, our kind of landscape and neighborhoods and just like the, the geographic organization of the U.S. is already so deeply segregated by race and class, right? And so there are some communities that are extremely affluent and have the resources to like run their own generator or like not be connected to the grid um, or, you know, do whatever that they need to do or sort of like build a wall around themselves, right? And my worry is the way in which like sort of localized responses to climate change can reinforce patterns of inequality quality um, in terms of who has the resources to do really good resiliency work locally, um, unless they're always paired with measures that um, reintegrate communities and um, make sure that there's investment in poor and racialized communities. Because otherwise, there are communities that are better situated uh, for um, local resiliency than others. And so I just, I, I feel concerned when that conversation about mutual aid is not connected to the ways that our landscape is already deeply segregated and who has the resources to engage in resiliency and who doesn't. Yeah, that's certainly one of my frustrations when people sort of dismiss the role of the state in these things and they are strictly, you know, anarchist, for example, uh, because a lot of these communities don't have the resources to just begin uh, communism, uh, so to speak, in their, you know, with what they have now. They need, uh, things need to be redistributed on a broader scale. Um so that brings me to a uh, piece 
that recently, a few months ago, I was kind of catching up on this, but it came out in Commune magazine, and we're we're fans of Commune, you know. Uh, I read it a lot. It's a good good publication. Andrews tells me about it all the time. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so I hear about it. I give him the hot gas. Uh, but this was a piece that I have to say dis- depressed the heck out of me. Uh, as soon as I read this thing, I need to start. I, I'm eating Ben and Jerry's, put on some Elliot Smith. This was a real downer uh, between the devil and the Green New Deal. Um, and you actually wrote a response to it on a, a particular academic journal, Facebook.com, uh, in which you laid out some of the some of the issues with it uh, that you took. Um, if you could just sort of give a give sort of a summary of what that article says and and what your immediate response to it was well i and i also note that i wrote a longer version of my response at viewpoint magazine which oh you is did like marxist yeah it's, it's fine i i drafted it on facebook i i, oh, okay. I sometimes do drafting on facebook it and got then, a lot yeah. of likes got a lot of likes i felt loved and then people wanted me to write it up elsewhere so i did a longer version all um, right we'll so, link to that yeah um so i mean I first want to say that, you know, there are many days or many moments of any given day where I feel pretty depressed and nihilistic about the possibilities of addressing the climate crisis and the thousand other like major forms of inequality and domination that exist in the world and in the U.S. and in our, you know, everywhere. Um, So I I understand that, um, that that sort of affect and that sort of like orientation towards the climate crisis. Um, But I think my, you know, what I was trying to do in my response to it is sort of look, look at these what I call sort of left skeptics uh, that are skeptical of the Green New Deal for a variety of reasons, um, several of which I think are valid. So some of which we've gone over already, but I'll just reiterate them. Like, is the Green New Deal just a way to save capitalism? So sort of in the way that the New Deal turned out to, I don't think that that was the intention of like all of, you know, the labor militants that were pushing FDR to do, to do what resulted in, in the New Deal. But the New Deal certainly like got the U.S. economy out of a depression and like helped capitalists for that reason. So, so there's a worry about, about just like saving capitalism. There's also a worry um, that we could talk about more later if we want about like the way that the Green New Deal doesn't forcefully address enough the dogma of growth and also the um, the extractive, the sort of extractivist basis of capitalism in terms of resource extraction. It might actually require more forms of resource extraction to transition to a renewable uh, economy or, or, or some new forms, I'll put it that way. So those are those are some of the concerns. But then there's this other thing, and, and those concerns I share, I want to say. Like, I'm, I want to make sure the Green New Deal isn't just a fix for capitalism, but an opportunity for transformative mobilization from below. So, like, I share that 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 concern but what i'm less convinced by is some of the other arguments and and the way that i frame it in my essay response is like on the one hand you get the idea that the green new deal isn't radical enough like it's not gonna get us to socialism or communism and on the other hand that it's too radical to ever pass Mm. like never get through and i just find this an incoherent, I mean, just on a simple logical level, yeah. you can either of those positions. I think it's hard to take both. And I think that it's kind of a um, paradox. It's a paradox and it puts the interlocutor in an impossible position, like to respond yeah. to that. So I just feel like we need to be clear. Do we think it's not radical enough? There's a series of ways I would respond to that. Or do we think it's too radical to ever pass? There's like a series of ways I would respond to that. Um, you know, on the first point, I think that, um, it, it, the, you know, specific policies within the Green New Deal could potentially like um, help capitalism out of a crisis. But I don't 
think we should just look at policies as we've been discussing already. Like we need to think about the political terrain and larger battles that could happen under the banner of a Green New Deal. And so for me, the Green New Deal is like a point of entry into thinking about the connections between capital capitalism and climate crisis, and that a lot of groups, and this is already happening, like tons of groups from like environmental justice groups to indigenous groups, like to labor unions are like starting to sort of see the Green New Deal as a terrain where they can make demands on the state or they can disrupt capital um, and and kind of orient to it in that way, um, rather than just thinking of like Green New Deal as just like a set of policies that some politician will implement. So first, I think we need to think about the Green New Deal broadly and think about its radical possibilities. Um, and then the second, in terms of implementation, like I agree, it's gonna be really hard. So like, let's think about that. Like if we think that the Green New Deal is too radical to be implemented, let's like strategically think about how it could be implemented. Like how, like what do we actually need to do? What type of movements do we need to build? What types of political pressure do we need to build? When we're thinking about government and leftist insurgents in office, which we finally have for like the first time in my lifetime, we have some actual left-wing people in all levels of public office, you know, DSA members, all sorts of folks. And so like, how can they use their power, whether it's propaganda to kind of spread the word about the Green New Deal or whether it's actually like pass writing and passing bills, what kind of exec executive authority could be used? How do we need to like destroy the Supreme Court and the filibuster and all these things? I mean, like, let's think about it because just saying it's impossible is like not a response. It's not a responsible response because we have a crisis. People are dying. Like we need to think about the tools we have available, both out of the state in terms of mobilization and, and within the state in terms of some of the policy levers and forms of veto power. I guess what really upset me about uh, the original piece, the commune piece, is it's extremely critical of the Green New Deal from the left and uh, like you were saying, is uh, supposedly it's too radical or, or it's not radical enough. But at the same time, you get to the end of, you know, a fairly sized piece. And I didn't have a clear idea of what the alternative was supposed to be. And if you don't have an alternative, I mean, the, 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 the parts of it you're picking away, the extractionism, the endless growth portion of uh, capitalism and a transition under capitalism. If you don't have a... a uh, is substantive alternative for that. Your alternative is essentially just like what a, a disease that wipes everybody out. These things are just going to keep happening. Right. I mean, I think that the, the, the end of the article was, uh, the end of the essay was anticlimactic and it was explicitly. So like Jasper referred to the sort of anti, like, I don't have a solution for you. Like there's, you know, I, Jasper wrote, um, you know, no revo revolution is the only way out of this, but no revolution is on the horizon. And he sort of said, like, I understand why people are attracted to the green new deal, given this kind of conjuncture that we're in, but sort of like, okay, and then what next, right? And so how do we build popular power, which I'm all for. I mean, like, I'm an anti-capitalist. Like, I want to build popular power and end systems of domination uh, um, as much as Jasper does, though we might have different views of how that happens. Um, but I do think we need to engage in some, like, strategic discussions of where we have power and how we build more of it. And that's where the article just kind of ended and didn't kind of engage in that conversation. Right. I don't know. Abstractly, the critique is fine. It's just that this whole issue feels so tangible and real to me that I don't want to talk about it in those terms right now. I just want to deal with it. Yeah. yeah and the other thing I'll say is like I've been, you know, doing research in, in South America and Chile where some of these issues of how extractivism and the Green New Deal intersect are like very concrete to people. Like, so I'll just spell it out a little bit, which is that um, in order to transition to a new energy system, we actually need to 
mine stuff out of the earth. Like there's no cost, environmentally cost-free energy transition. And that just is a reality. So like to build, you know, electric vehicles, even if it's mass transit and electric buses and stuff like that, those all require mined elements out of the earth. Um, and so one of the things I'm studying right now is mining lithium, which is needed for lithium batteries, which is like in our cell phones and laptops, but it's also in Teslas and it's also in electric buses. And also for renewable grids, you need battery storage. Um, um, so I was kind of attracted to this research area because it's like this is kind of a way that extractivism and the energy transition that I want and the extractivism that I don't like intersect and sort of brings up a lot of thorny dilemmas and issues for the left um, and for um, climate justice. So I went to Chile, researched it firsthand, did a bunch of field work, interviewed a bunch of people. And first of all, there's a lot of like interesting forms of local protest and resistance to lithium extraction in South America, which is where a lot of the lithium in the world comes from. And so I think, first of all, we need to like, not just like say we're anti-extractive, but actually like talk to the people that are doing organizing on the ground to try to like reduce the impacts in their communities around um, some of the environmental impacts of lithium mining. So that's one thing is like, it's not like, I don't know, sometimes when people talk about anti-extractivism, it's almost like the they're just these victims of extractivism and they have no agency. But if you go around the world, including in the U.S., where there's plenty of extractivism and we saw protests against that at Standing Rock, like there are communities organizing against that and they have interesting ideas for how to address it. So that's like one um, piece. But the other piece is when I talk to people down there about the Green New Deal and I was honest with them and they I also don't need to be honest. I mean, like they know, they understand how the energy transition, for example, in the global north might affect them. Um, and, and we talked about these issues and they were not like against the Green New Deal. And these are like really militant indigenous activists, environmental activists in Chile where I was. And they're like, they see the Green New Deal as like a positive development because they see it as much better than like neoliberal climate policies. They're worried about a Green New Deal that doesn't attend to like the global justice implications of some of the resource extraction. And so they want to like push on the Green New Deal to radicalize it and internationalize it. But they're not like, fuck the Green New Deal. I mean, that just wasn't my experience, at least. And I had yeah. a lot of interesting and and difficult, dif like ethically and politically difficult conversations with someone, you know, from the global north going to research somewhere else in the world. It's, you know, it, there's a lot of like asymmetries and gulfs that sort of divide us. But having those discussions and, and sort of strategy discussions with movements there was super enlightening. So, yeah, that to me was the most compelling part of the article between the devil and the Green New Deal was, and he talks about, these communities in rural Mongolia that could be mm -hmm. pretty severely damaged by uh, extracting the resources Where's we the need. Extraction. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So how do we, what are the, how do we mitigate that? Is, is it just inevitable yeah. that some people are going to get? No, nothing's inevitable. I mean, like, you know, even geography isn't destiny. Like there are a lot of meaning that, you know, there's a lot of like deposits around the world of, of, of minerals that are needed to like um, build, you know, whether it's electric vehicles or solar panels or wind turbines, all of which require things extracted from the earth. And it's not like an accident where that extraction takes place. A lot of scholars have documented that extraction is cited in, in communities that are already marginalized and and because like the effects would be toxic and so like affluent communities don't want it in their backyard. So first of all, we need to understand that like there's already inequality built into where extraction takes place. It's not inevitable that like a certain community is exposed to those toxic effects. So I just want to sort of lay that out. Um, but the second thing is that the amount of resources that we in quotes, like we in the US or whatever need for an energy transition is also not inevitable. There are, you know, a bunch of different pathways that I see like moving forward. Like one of them basically maintains every aspect of the American lifestyle 
from like, you know, Jeeps to cheeseburgers to suburbs to like whatever, which, you know, we could have all our individual different feelings about, but those, that's like the American lifestyle. And it's very energy intensive and very resource intensive and land intensive and all those sorts of things. And so there's a, path that like tries to preserve that and uses like techno fixes to preserve as much of that as possible. Like we were kind of talking about earlier. Um, but, but bases it off of renewable energy instead of fossil fuel energy. And then there's another path that kind of uses this as an opportunity to actually change the way we consume. And I just want to flag right here because we're socialists and not like liberals or like people that think that like consumers just changing their behavior is the way to solve climate change. Um, That when I say changing the way we consume, I mean that collectively. And I mean that in a way that attends a lot to inequality. Because right now, like some people consume a lot and a lot of us um, consume too much of some things, but we actually don't consume enough of other things. Like we don't know enough health care. Right. We don't have enough affordable housing. So it's not like when you talk about consumption, you always have to be clear about that. But overall, we need to change like the way as a society that we consume, both to make it more equal and to make it less energy intensive and resource intensive, which is absolutely possible and actually could open up like better ways of living that are like more fun, like have more, I don't know, social connection um, than the ways that we live typically in the U.S. today. Maybe more skateboards. <laughs> I'm just thinking on my feet. Definitely more skateboards. <laughs> yeah. So what? Uh, that, that that's another thing that um, people like Lee Phillips have pointed out that a, a lot of the the rhetoric surrounding climate change is about consumption, 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 and that can sort of be alienating to a lot of people who are working class who should consume more they should have more food they sh- yeah. yeah well they they Consuming don't have fun, enough folks yeah they literally deal with it yeah they need that's the problem right well yeah but but overall do you th- do you foresee um a path to a, a world where uh people are just cons- you, you see it as people are consuming different things or or it's yeah. a, a matter of inequality like the the rich right. are well, consuming you know- yeah, I think I disagree. Well, I shouldn't say I think. I know I disagree with Lee Phillips okay. about things. Um, but you know, it's it's it's. I also enjoy disagreement and comradely debate. So, um, so much tea out of this segment. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, love to argue with comrades um, is my tagline. Anyway, no. Um, so Lee Phillips, like, I think you know the difference. The major difference I have with him is that he is kind of in a way that first path that I was spelling out before where we preserve a lot of like the current American quote unquote American lifestyle and just like make it renewable. Um, and, um, and of course he's in favor of much more social spending and, you know, he's a considered himself socialist, all sorts of things. So, so he's not Andrew Yang, um, but he's closer to Andrew Yang than I am uh, a lot in terms mm. of like sort of appeal to technological fixes. Um, and so that's a difference. I've argued with him about this before, you know, whatever. So that that's a difference between us. I think that we do need to change the way we consume, but it's not about austerity. Um, it's about re-envisioning what abundance looks like. Like is abundance, you know, buying and having a new cell phone every year um, is abundance like, you know, eating like fast food at any hour or like owning a you know certain type of vehicle or like how do we consider a what do we think a good life is um and you know i'm not always convinced that those consumer goods make people happy in some deep way in fact i might say that like in a world as depressing as the one that we live in and with as much economic precarity and insecurity and like psychic stress and chronic stress that people deal with that those are just ways to feel better a little bit better about our lives and plus all this advertisement tells us to buy them but i'm not like convinced that like people get deep 
happiness from like owning particular forms of like obsolete, you know, manufactured for obsolescence plastic junk. I think we could think about society that's abundant and feels plentiful and feels like everyone has enough um, without necessarily like reinforcing habits of consumption that are really just planetarily unsustainable um like the amount of meat that america like i'm gonna just like you know put like this is a this is like a challenging topic for socialists and we may disagree in this room um uh the amount of meat that americans consume i mean again it's not about making everyone be a vegan but it's about thinking about like a factory farming system that generates a lot of toxic externalities that is what enables the amount of meat consumption that we have, plus all the hidden subsidies that pay for it. So when I talk about consumption, it's like, what are the systems that profit from and enable forms of unsustainable consumption that may or may not make people happy or healthy, but we are told all the time that we, through advertising, that we should be doing. Right. Uh, among those things, do you, uh, how do you feel about more research into things like genetically uh meat that that meat that isn't meat what is it called let's like comes beyond from a, meat beyond meat. meat that just meat. yeah right 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 yeah i mean we actually so I, <laughs> <laughs> cyborg hamburger <laughs> so i i am um, with a couple other comrades actually the same people that i wrote the planet to win book with um we edited a series at jacobin magazine on the green new deal everyone should check it out um and we've run tons of articles and one of them we had was called socialized lab meat if i'm not mistaken so we've published on this topic and this is an area where again leftists disagree a lot um but um first of all i want to say that we shouldn't be against research but we should always be careful about like who's doing the research and to what ends like i don't think like a private company figuring out you know, how to make the next big thing is like the type of research I want. I would like publicly funded research oriented towards like the public interest. And so even at the research stage, not even getting into sort of the deployment stage, um, I think that we need to be clear about the private sector versus the public sector and who's actually conducting research. Um, and as I said earlier, like I think leftists should be open to technology and science and not somehow think that technology and science are like right wing. I mean, that's like a very strange, like misunderstanding sometimes. Um, but, or that it's only corporations that care about these things. We should care about them, but we should always be clear on like who, who's doing the research, um, who benefits from it, and um, what the real costs are. Like some of these techno fixes are themselves very energy intensive or require a lot of raw materials, and like those costs aren't always included when they're presented as an alternative. But I definitely think we should be debating stuff like lab meat and thinking about it and considering it um, uh, because meat is super land intensive um, and energy intensive in, in the current big agriculture. It's also really tasty, it's, which is... Well, you can make the science meat better <laughs> and then you fix the whole problem. Plus, it, like looking over the entire endless cow genocide portion that'll really ruin your Wednesday afternoon. Um, no, it's very resource intensive moving that shield in front of the sun um, to create the snow piercer. But... Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about this and we didn't, we didn't plan on this originally. So if you don't feel comfortable answering it, that's fine. But I just figured since we have such a smart person on the show, uh, who is not a comedian and is a scientist, we get a lot of emails about the role of nuclear power in the green new deal oh, and whether oh, for or against you bring up something like seriously controversial. So I'm glad we got, to <laughs> Do you have any more you hot have, takes? Yeah, for us? you have a chance. I don't. Uh, you have a chance to mold us uh, because I don't know about you, Alex. I am too stupid to decide for myself really whether nuclear really power is good or bad. Yeah. Um. Um. You know, I'm not. I'm. This is not my 
area of expertise. And I'm saying that not to undermine my authority because I'm confident about all sorts of things, but I just want to note that, you know, so you can talk to other people about this as well. But um, my under, and this is also something that I didn't mention with the Bernie plan. That was a point of dispute and, and criticism that Bernie got because he has a pretty strong anti-nuclear stance. Um, right. Some of that is generational in the sense that like he came of age in a moment in the seventies where like, um, there was a lot of anti-nuclear, both anti-nuclear weapons and anti-nuclear energy activism on the left. And I think he was, my understanding is that he was quite shaped by that. Um, and he just is extremely skeptical of the possibility of dealing with the toxic waste in a responsible way. And I totally. think skeptical of, I don't know that he said this, but another kind of skepticism we might have is in terms of like, the extraction that goes into like nuclear waste is also not i mean it's not nuclear waste nuclear energy also requires stuff from the earth i.e uranium and like so mining there's like and mining produces its own emissions right so it's like nothing is straightforward um so nuclear has waste and it also has resource extraction that's required by it um but the but the difficulty is, is that we already, I think about half of, well, actually, don't quote me on this. I, never mind. Skip that. Because I, I was uh, I was just saying a quote, and then I don't want to. I'm don't putting wanna, my pen down. <laughs> facts out there. Anyway. Um, but, but, but of the renewable energy that we currently have, like a significant proportion of that is nuclear. You, I think that is correct, and you can say that. We can keep that in. But like, so in the books. if we, it is, the point is that if we just like shut down all the nuclear plants tomorrow, our carbon footprint would go up because what would fill in that gap is like gas power plants and coal power plants. So this is where the sequencing, you know, similar to what I was talking about earlier, becomes important. Like at what point do we actually decommission the nuclear power plants? I think that we probably need to build out some more renewable energy before we can decommission. Or so, go the other way with it, nuclear fusion, unlimited energy. Well, yeah, but not unlimited, but but like very clear risks in terms of waste. So I don't. I think that most like environment left environmentalists don't think that like nuclear energy is a solution um, on its own at all, because um, because there are just there are tremendous risks, and also a lot of these nuclear power plants are just not economic, meaning like they require a lot of government subsidies to stay. Like they're very expensive. There's a lot of issues with nuclear, um, but I, I think that it would probably be irresponsible to shut down, to decommission nuclear tomorrow, because then we would fill that gap with like fossil fuel energy. So I think we should think about a timeline for in the future decommissioning, in the near future, but not tomorrow, decommissioning nuclear plants, but focus much more right now on building out renewable energy rapidly. I, that's the position I've come to. I mean, I, you know, I've sort of, I was actually... I don't know. I've shifted. I've shifted on this over time. I, I'm pretty convinced, you know, when I hear them of anti-nuclear arguments. But then I think about the and the concerns about nuclear. But then I think about like what would fill that gap if we shut off nuclear tomorrow, and that's just not sustainable for the climate. So I think we need to like be able to walk and chew gum at the same time with nuclear. I guess is the way I put it. Walk and chew gum at the same time. Thank you for answering my moderately <laughs> spicy question. <laughs> anyway. My last like sort of tech is this a, can this be a thing question is about airplanes because that seems to be uh, one thing that people are because I think the left has broadly accepted that the consumer choices thing is not a smart strategy like sort of shaming people about you know recycling more or whatever but that does seem to be a sort of lingering part of that is is uh, flying international flights in particular. Um, yeah. Is is there a way to just make electric planes? Can that be a thing in the near future? 
Yeah, not not quite yet. Not we're not quite there yet. I mean, there are different proposals out there for electrifying planes for using biofuels, which obviously, and, and Jasper notes this in his article, like biofuels have their own negative effects in terms of how much land they take up. Um, um, though there are some maybe more promising ways to use biofuels with aviation, maybe, maybe like a million caveats. Um, but basically the bottom line is we're not there yet. We don't know um, technologically or scientifically like how to decarbonize aviation um, or how to make zero carbon aviation, which are slightly different. You know, none of this is doable yet is the point. But I think we should research it. Um, you know, I also think we should just fly less. And I'm a guilty person here because as an academic and also like an activist, like I go to conferences and conventions and stuff like that. And I've and again, I'm not promoting any individual solutions, but just because these problems come up like on an individual level for in our real lives, like. You know, I try to take the train whenever possible, but it's, you know, I, it's hard, right? Like to, to lit, to, to do what I do and never fly and do field work in other countries. Um, and so there's a lot of trade-offs there, but the most important thing to keep in mind is that few people fly a lot. I think mm. that like some middle and upper class people, and I'm not trying to interpolate anyone in this room, but like, you know, or people that hang out in those circles, we think people fly a lot. Like I, I sometimes generalize my own experience. I'm like, oh, fuck everyone must fly as much as me. That's absolutely not true. Few people fly a lot and like half the population like never flies. Um, yeah. And so flying is extremely unequal in terms of consumption. And that's one of those places where the affluent have a way bigger carbon footprint than anybody else does. So one is like thinking about ways to like reduce the extreme overconsumption of the affluent, whether that's like a really high carbon tax on flying or plane that incorporate the externalities and the actual costs of it, right? Um, so yeah, bottom line is we need to research more because there's no current scalable like technology that would make planes carbon free or, or zero carbon or whatever. Um, but we also need to be real about the fact that like a small percentage of the population flies way too much and we can use policies to reduce that behavior. Yeah, maybe we can shame them. <laughs> Well, a lot of public shaming. The wearing a hat in the shape of a cone. I can yeah. tell the <laughs> the audience is dying to know. I fly about twice a year, just in case. There it is. There's they the were number. thinking I was doing my weekly Dursley flight where I'm uh, smashing styrofoam and throwing it out the window. No, it's only <laughs> a couple times a year. Um, but yeah, so th thank you again for for coming on and air with us. And I also really wanted to thank you and the rest of the contributors to this book for talking about these things in a way that's revolved on how things can be different. Because I remember when I was starting to get interested in politics, uh, there's a lot of great research, a lot of great books, but it was all about how fucked everything is, how like there's no hope and it was just going through the issues and analyzing them and, and just showing like how doomed we are. Um, and the issues are still there. They're still here with us. A lot of them have gotten much, much worse. But now um, I'm just very gratified that there's more smart people like you who are actually talking about solutions and not in a vague way, in a very well thought out sort of nuanced and detailed way. So, so thank you for that. Well, thank you for that great plug. That's also exactly <laughs> kind of cool to take away. It's like, you know, there's like this mix of like, utopianism and pragmatism in the book in a way. And I don't even see those as mutually opposed to one another, but just like, what would a better society look like? Like, let's dream a bit. And also like, what is like the nitty gritty of actually like 
a socially just energy transition? Like, how can we actually do that? And so, yeah, I'm glad that's what you took away from it. Yes. And thank you for answering our airplane questions <laughs> and uh, uh, other space questions. Uh, yeah. Theo Rio Francos, uh, where can people find you? Uh, TheoRioFrancos.com, Trio Francos on Twitter, Theo Francos on Facebook, all the things. I'm, I, no one, I think literally no people in the world have my name except for me, the Thea and the Rio Francos. Rio Francos is a small family to begin with, and just Thea's weird first name to have. So wow. I'm really easy. <laughs> <laughs> you were easy to find on Skype. I'll give you that. <laughs> Cool. Um, thanks guys. This was great. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Come back anytime. I, I will be happy to. And that's the interview. You like it? Yeah, that was probably the best interview we've done, I would say. I feel very smart now. Yeah. I feel like I've been to more school than I've been to. <laughs> which is That's what podcasting is. Is you don't have to read anything. Uh-huh. You don't have to take a course, but you, you do get to, to feel like an expert in yeah. something for the 2 hours before it leaves your brain. The thing you just Yeah, listen. the thing is and then you'll try to tell someone you about it and you'll be like, "She said that the, <laughs> the, 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 the there's not enough nuclear but the right amount." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a really good point you made. Um, right, you can just reference the person. Like, if you disagree with somebody and you don't know what the actual disagreement is, you can be like, "Actually, have you read Thea Rio Francos? Because uh, I think her take on this is pretty good. Can't really explain it is what it is off the top of my head, but I bet I actually do I that all down, the time. Yeah, I'm just like, if you read this thing that I read and then pretended I said it to you just now, <laughs> <laughs> I would seem so smart. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know what I was thinking about in this moment just now since we recorded the intro? So you were canvassing for Bernie Sanders uh-huh. at Maria Hernandez for, Park. For DSA for Bernie, yes. For DSA for Bernie Sanders at Maria Hernandez Park, a, a local Bushwick Park. Um, when I think Maria Hernandez Park, you know what's there is mostly church services, mm. <laughs> outdoor church services. Mm-hmm. You win any of those people over? Uh, I prayed and prayed and prayed, but... Uh I, they couldn't get over their other bearded friend. Because <laughs> they got microphones. They're set up in the middle of the park. They weren't they're playing there. songs. And they'd be like, this song reminds me of canvassing for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> they weren't there that day. But I, I do think that that is honestly the best uh, a, a constituency we do need to be reaching out to is... Um, Jesus. Jesus. He can help, you know. He can strike down some... CEO, climate, is, uh, some uh, fossil fuel CEOs, that'd be cool. According to Catholicism, Jesus, at least three votes. <laughs> Folks, uh, go to church. Thank you for so much for listening to our podcast. Let's do some plugs and leave, and you'll never hear from us again. Uh, Anders, anything special you want to plug? At Anders Lee here on Twitter, um, and I do want to plug... Our, are you going to plug this, or should we plug it together? You know what? Do you want to plug it together? Let's do it. Next Thursday on 9/12. September 12th. Day after 9-11. Uh, show starting at 7.30, doors at 7. We are back roasting the Democratic debates at the Secret Boom. Loft in New York City. Boom. We're watching it live. One of the most fun shows I've ever done last month. You got to be there. Folks, it's BYOB. 
You can get as trashy as you want. And here's what's important, that you are going to outnumber the weird normies who come to our show and have never <laughs> heard of the podcast. Because it's a very threatening environment to be uh, performing in, and they don't know all our weird inside jokes about Jake. And you just got to come. Please come. You got to come. Kath Barbadoro will be there, too, if you're a fan of hers. It's me, Anders, and Kath Barbadoro. Jake is on tour. Make sure you get your tickets online. They're five bucks cheaper. Yes, don't uh, get them at the door. It's going to sell out. And I want to do a couple drinking games. I'm thinking now we're going to do every time Joe Biden says, no joke, we're going to take a drink. Yeah, because uh, it is a joke to us. Yeah, we're twisted. he's a joke. Huh. He, he's a goddamn joke. Boom. Yeah. I'm not and where where can people get the tickets? Eventbrite? Yeah, we'll have the we'll have the link on our Twitter, but it, it is an Eventbrite event, so you should be able to find it on there. So we'll, we'll put that in the show description, too. And... Yeah, that's really... I just want you to come to that show so badly. Please. Please come. Please. 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 <laughs> All right. Uh, that's it for me. I think my Twitter's still locked, so fuck it. <laughs> okay, everybody. It's finished. Stop flying. Stop <laughs> flying.